Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 11, which is where we left off last time, to the end of the chapter. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, his body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul who wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for how it has been preserved for us over centuries and centuries and centuries. Thank you for the freedom to open it and publicly read it in this place this morning. Father, I pray that your spirit will take this word and drive it into our hearts and cause it to live within us and cause us to live in Jesus' name. Amen. So, previously in Ephesus, what we've had so far is in week one, we looked at Acts 19 and saw that when Paul and the Holy Spirit showed up in Ephesus, there was transformation. In week two, the first half of chapter one, we asked the question, what drives you? And we saw that the steam in Paul's engine was these massive truths of the things that we have been blessed with in Christ. We reflected on what it means to be blessed, and we sometimes have a very small view of what it means to be blessed. In the third week, we talked about prayer and power at the end of Ephesians 1. And in the fourth week, which was the last time we were in Ephesians, we looked at Paul's cheery statement in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. And then we went on to find out how in Christ we have been made alive. So the first half of chapter 2 started with that bleak statement, you were dead. And the second half of chapter 2 starts with a similar bleak statement in verse 12. 
He says, you were separated from Christ. That's the same as being dead, okay? There's no difference really there. You were separated from Christ. Alienated. Do you ever feel alienated? Do you ever feel separated? Do you ever feel sorry for people who you know are alienated for whatever reason? Isolated. Separate from community. Separate from family. Um, We're very aware, obviously, over recent years on the news of refugees. People who are alienated, separated, displaced, have no citizenship, have no rights, have no home. They are separated. And Paul lists five pretty bleak statements about the Gentiles here and how they were before meeting Christ. He says, you were without Christ. This is verse 12 and 13. You were without Christ. You were aliens from the citizenship of Israel. Aliens is a funny word. You remember when you were a kid and you would hear aliens read in church and you'd think, you know. There are people who who argue from the book of Job that there are unicorns or there were unicorns, um, which there may well have been. There's a little verse in Job about about something with a a single horn. And you can certainly make a case for aliens as well if if you stretch things a little bit here in Paul. By aliens, the the word alien, the the Greek word literally means another. You are another type of person. You're different. You're separated. You don't belong. That's ultimately what the word alien means. You do not belong here. And the Gentiles did not belong in Israel. There was a hostility so deep that it's hard for us to actually understand it. The hostility went as far as If a Gentile woman was in labor, a Jew was not allowed to help in any way because by helping you were helping to bring another Gentile into the world and we don't want that. If a Jew married a Gentile, the family of the Jew held a funeral for that person even though they had not physically died. The hostility was deep. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. All the great promises that God had made to his people don't apply to you because you're outside. You're outside. You were without hope and you were without God. I'll tell you a strange thing. I remember sounding strange to me the first time I heard it. The pagans in the first century called the Christians atheists. That's the term that they used for Christians. Because the pagans in their temples and in their worship events, you could see a statue, you could see an idol, you could see these things that they were bound down to, all their different many gods. But whenever they went into the Christian worship event or into the Christian community, they could not see any images of God. They didn't know that the Christians themselves were the image of God. And because they couldn't see any gods physically in the place, They called the Christians atheists. They called them the people that have no God, ironically. But Paul turns that round and he uses that very word in in Greek. He says, you were the atheists. For all of your idols, for all of your gods, all of the things you worship and bow down to, all of the things you spend your time, your money, your energy serving, you don't have a God. You have idols, you have statues, you have selfishness, you've got demons but you are atheist, you have no God. And that's the state that these people were in. No Jesus, no citizenship, no promises, no hope, no God. They did not belong. If a Gentile came up to Jerusalem and wanted to go into the temple, 
there was a court of the Gentiles where he was allowed to go. And then there was a wall. And on that wall, there was a sign that literally said, no Gentiles passed this point on the penalty of death. It was not trespassers will be prosecuted. It was trespassers will be executed. There was a wall that prevented them from going any further. They were outside. They were separate. Even if they wanted to come close to God, they couldn't. There was a wall. There was a barrier. They were alienated. And in in the world that we live in, there are so many alienated people. Lonely people. I remember reading an article in the news uh, maybe a year ago now, and it, it estimated that 9 million people in the UK suffered from loneliness, and a minister was actually being appointed in Parliament to deal with the issue. Loneliness. If you walk up and down the street and in and out of the housing developments in this town, I wonder how many people are lonely, isolated, alienated, working hard, coming home, watching TV and waiting to die is basically that's life summed up for so many people. Alienated, isolated, on their own. They don't belong anywhere. Many of them isolated from their own families due to hostility like refugees. I can remember one night praying in a, in, a, in a different prayer meeting in a different place and God just showing me something so clearly as I prayed and I'm sure it's probably eight years ago now but as I prayed I had a, a picture in my mind like something you would see on the, on the TV news in a war-torn country. And there were just a stream of people walking along the road, refugees. I'm sure you've seen plenty of footage like that in the news. People just carrying a few belongings, maybe stuck on a, on a truck with a few things piled up on the top of it, trudging along the road, displaced by war. And I can still actually see one of them. One woman at the front lifted up her head and looked me in the eye, and I could see the hopelessness in her eyes. And I felt God saying, these are not, these are not physical refugees These are spiritual refugees. These are people who are spiritually displaced. They have no community. They don't belong anywhere. And how many people in our wider community does that represent? Who are just trudging along the road, holding a handful of things, nowhere to belong. Paul says that was your place. Other words that are used for refugees, displaced people, asylum seekers. Seeking a home. Seeking citizenship. Marcus talked last week about citizenship. And for some of those people in in, in the real world, the the best thing that can possibly happen to them is they gain citizenship in a country and suddenly they belong somewhere. And suddenly they have rights. The church is to be the place where people can belong and be part of community. And Paul goes on to say that One of the things that that Jesus has done is he has created a new humanity. Instead of it being Gentiles and Jews, there is now a third race in humanity. It's not just Jews and the Gentiles have come in. It's a new humanity, a new people where both have become one. In verse 14, he is our peace who has made the two one. What about that wall in the temple that stood between them, separating the refugees from the presence of God and keeping them out? It says in in verse 
14, that he has destroyed the barrier. (laughs) The thing that kept people from God in his crucifixion, he destroyed it. He literally blew it apart so that all could come in. And now the lonely and the isolated and the spiritual refugees and the people who have no sense of citizenship and no sense of identity and who are just literally living on their own and waiting for death, they now have a community they can be part of. And no wall keeping them out of it. And no sign saying you cannot come any further. This is only for a particular type of people. No, the wall is destroyed because of his death. And he's created in verse 15, one new man. One new humanity. The people of God. Not Jews, not Gentiles, not Protestants, not Catholics, not old, young, rich, poor, slave, free. One people. And the thing that binds them all together is the presence of the Holy Ghost within them. They are the people of God. The wall has been broken down. I love a little verse in Psalm 68. God sets the lonely in families. He takes those who have no family, no community, no citizenship, no identity, no belonging, No one to go to when they're just fed up. And he puts them into family. And that's the church. One of the the, the great visions that we have together for this place is that it would be a healing community where people can just come and sit maybe for a month, maybe for two months, maybe for six months and just be in family. And be in community and be healed by it from the brokenness and the damage. A sense of corporate identity. A sense of, do you know what? I belong there. I belong there. And I encounter God there. And those are my people. Another verse that has really been heavy on our hearts throughout the table journey from from four or five years ago, is in Zechariah 8.23. It says that in those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his garment. Read one person of God, one of God's people. They will lay hold on one of God's people and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. That's the asylum seeker coming to the door of the church and saying, I have nowhere to belong. I have no community. I have no family. I have nothing to be part of. We have heard that God is with you. Can we come with you? Oh, that that would happen at every church in this town and in this land, that there'd be people at the door saying, I need community. I need friendship. I need to be among you because I can see that God's among you. I can see that Jesus is in your midst. I can see what he's doing in your lives and through your lives. Can I please come with you? This was a vision of Gentiles coming to Jews and begging for citizenship, begging for asylum, begging to be part of the community of faith. There's a verse in verse 16. It talks about how how Jesus and how God through the cross has put to death the hostility that was between people. Or in older versions it says he put to death the enmity. Just on a little side note, 
I was reading this during the week and somebody made the point. When there's division, don't put the enemy to death. Put the enmity to death. Kill the thing that's dividing. Don't kill the person you're divided with. He put to death the hostility. He put to death what was in between people. He didn't put people to death. Good little note for us. Two completely different people can come to the foot of the cross and instantly they are one. It's one of the most beautiful things when you go anywhere in the world or when you you go to a different community of faith somewhere else and you're just instantly one. Instantly one. Skype call with Marcus in July and it's just like instantly one. 6,000 miles on a little 13-inch screen in my study and you on your iPhone or your iPad or whatever and you're one because of the cross. You're not one in probably many other aspects of life and where you are and what you do, but you're one in him. That's what the cross has achieved, a new humanity. And it's a little reminder of in chapter 1, if you have your Bible open in verse 10, where we're, we're told the purpose of God. We're told what it is that he is doing in Christ. And it says that his, his aim and his purpose at the end of verse 10 of chapter 1 is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together <laughs> under one head, Christ. And here's an example of it, Jews and Gentiles. So he has a new humanity, but there's something else that is new, and it's what I want to linger on this morning. At the end of the chapter, and I'm going to, I'm going to pull out a couple of things in between towards the end, but I want to now jump to the end of the chapter because there's something else that is new in this chapter. A new humanity, and verse 22, and you can see it in the verses before it. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In verse 21, I should have read it first, that in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. Not only a new humanity, but a new temple. Now, what is a temple? It's the first thing that will come into your mind when you hear the word temple. You probably will think building. Big old glorious building in the ancient world where people went to worship. I want to take you on a little journey. You will need your Bible. Or you will need an app on your phone. But if you're using an app on your phone, go to that little moon and hit do not disturb. So that nobody interrupts you as we go on this journey. And if you're thinking, I can't be bothered with a journey, I'm fed up with Spence's Old Testament Tours.com. <laughs> Go on the journey. You will enjoy the journey. We're going somewhere. We never just get in the car and drive around. Did you ever do that as a kid? You know, you'd get in the car and your parents would say, or you'd say, Where are we going? And say, We're going for a drive. And literally go for a drive, you know. <laughs> you might get an ice cream or something, but then you'd just come back home. And people don't really seem to do that much anymore. Like <laughs> But I'm telling you, I'm not just taking you for a drive. We're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. What is a temple? Now, this is something that you would probably find yourself having to go back and review again. So I'm going to put all the slides into Dropbox later, and you can work through this again if you want. But there's, it's so important. I, I think this will help you just see the overarching, glorious picture 
of what God is actually doing in the world. Go to Exodus 25 first. Exodus 25. I'll try not and... If you go to every passage, you're going to have friction burns on, the, on your fingertips. Like, so don't, don't feel you have to go to everything, but go to, go to Exodus 25. One of the most famous temple scenarios in the Old Testament is the Tabernacle of Moses. And what I want to do is I want to show you some features in the tabernacle and in the temple. And then go on a wee run and open your eyes to something. So some of the features in the tabernacle. You had a thing in the tabernacle called the menorah. It's, it's mentioned, well, let me read verse, nine of Exodus, or verse 8 and 9 of Exodus 25. It says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me. That's the tabernacle. And I will dwell among them. That's God's purpose. That's his intent. I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God goes on to give Moses a blueprint for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 and beyond. can be difficult passages to, to chomp through in your, in your reading plan, but it's rich what's actually going on. One of the things that was in the tabernacle, I'm not going to go through everything, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but one of the things in the tabernacle was a thing called the menorah, a little picture of it there. Um, the menorah was the lampstand. And in case you've ever noticed it before, the lampstand was meant to represent the burning bush. It was a tree on fire. Look at the shape of it. Look at the branches on the side of it. There was representation of a tree. Now, we're going fast, but we're going stay online. There was a tree in the tabernacle. There was a thing in Exodus 30. There was a thing called the laver that had water in it. There was water in the tabernacle. The plan was given on a mountain. On Mount Sinai. The plan was given. If you're taking notes, you're going to really dislike me in a few minutes once I start speeding up. It'll all be available later. There was, the, there was a tent. Obviously, the tabernacle itself was a tent. It was a structure. There were precious metals. If you read Exodus 25, at the start of the chapter, you read about gold and silver and bronze. You read about, you read about blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. You read about onyx stones in verse 7. All the precious materials used to build the tabernacle. There's an altar in the tabernacle and there are priests in the tabernacle who serve in it and offer sacrifices to God. God is there dwelling among his people. It is the place of his presence and it is the place where heaven and earth meet. Let me just point out another little detail in Exodus 26, 31. Again, something that we can easily pass by, but once you see it, it, it makes a bit more sense. The veil that was in between the Holy of Holies and the the outer court says, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by skilled craftsmen. Blue, purple, and scarlet are the colors of the Middle Eastern sky. And the veil was to represent the sky, the division between where people were and where God was. And only once a year could anyone go through the veil. Let's skip on to 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and we'll go to another temple and this time it's Solomon's temple, 2 Chronicles chapter 2. 
And we'll look at some of the features of the temple that, that Solomon built. So chapter 2 starts off again with a command. Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. In chapter 3, verse 5, you read about paneling and carvings and you see trees are in this temple. There are trees. Tree imagery is used. And in chapter 4, verse 7, you see that there are actually 10 lampstands. Not one of those little tree lampstands, but ten of them. In chapter 4, verse 2, you read about the sea, which is the lever that held the water in the temple. So we've got water again. In chapter 3, verse 6, we read about gold and onyx and precious stones. Onyx isn't mentioned in that verse, but gold and precious stones are mentioned. The precious materials that were used to build it. In chapter 4, verse 1, there is an altar. And in chapter 5, 14, there are priests. And God is there. So we have a tree. We have water. We have a structure. We have precious materials. We have an altar and we have priests. And we have the presence of God. And we have a veil again. The, the division between heaven and earth. Embroidered to look like the sky. So of those two structures, question is, are those the only temples in the Bible? Herod rebuilt the temple in 20 BC. But are those the only temples in the Bible? Go to Genesis 2. We're on a journey. We're going somewhere. It'll be worth it. We'll get ice cream. Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> and let's look at the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden in verse 9, there are trees. In verse 10, there is a river. If you go, don't go now, but in Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel talks about Eden and he describes it as being on, on a mountain. In verse 12 of chapter 2, there is gold and there is onyx. There are precious materials in Eden. Adam, if you study into the way Adam's work of tending and looking after the garden is described you'll come to the conclusion that Adam is a lot like a priest in what he does in the garden. God is there in Genesis 3 verse 8. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We've got a tree, we've got water, we've got a mountain, we've got precious materials. I think we've got a priest and God is there. And we've also got a commission. The commission that was given to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And I think there's a lot of imagery in Eden, which is temple imagery. Let's go to another one. Let's go to Noah in Genesis chapter 8 and 9. Was there any water associated with Noah? Just a wee bit. We had water. In Genesis 8 verse 4, <clears throat> it says that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. We've got mountains in this scene. In verse 16, we've got God appearing and speaking to Noah. God is present in this scene. Water, mountains, the presence of God. In verse 20, there's an altar and an offering is made on it. And Noah plays the part of a priest. And a soothing aroma goes to God. And Noah gets a commission. In chapter 9, verse 1, the exact same commission that Adam and Eve got is given to Noah. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. It's a temple scene. All the imagery round about it makes you think temple and then the call is to be fruitful and multiply. 
Let's go to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And look at, look at verse 6. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. We've got a tree. In verse 7, he built an altar. In verse 8, he pitched a tent. In verse 7, God appears to him, speaks to him. We've got the presence of God. We've got an altar, a tent. We've got a mountain. In verse 10, you read that this has taken place. Abram has to go down from where he is. He has to go down to Egypt. And Abram is given a commission in the context of chapter 12 at the start of the chapter. And the, the commission is this. The promise is this. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. The commission is the same as the one given to Adam and it's the same as the one given to Noah and there is a call for multiplication. There is a call for increase and it's given in the context of temple imagery. Mountains, trees, altars, priests. Genesis 13, it all happens again. In Genesis 13, in verse 14 of Genesis 13, God shows up, speaks to Abraham. And then we get a little bit of what's going on in the background in verse 18. Abraham is pitching tents. That's temple stuff. He is near trees. He's on a mountain called Hebron and he builds an altar and he acts as a priest. It's a temple scene. There's no building. There are no great big stones on top of each other. But it's a temple scene. And look at what the commission is that God gives to Abram in verse 15. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Multiplication. Same as Adam. Same as Noah. Same as Abram in chapter 12. The commission, the command, the promise. Multiply. Multiply. Fill the earth. We go on to Isaac in Genesis 26. Just in case you're not getting it. In Genesis 26, verse 23, Isaac goes up to Beersheba. He climbs. In verse 25, he pitches a tent and he builds an altar and he digs a well. Or there's a well there. We've got a tent, we've got an altar, we've got water. And if he's got an altar, he's acting as a priest. And in verse 24, God shows up and speaks. What's the commission? I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants. Temple imagery and a command to multiply and a command to increase. Let's go to Jacob because he's not going to be left out in Genesis 35. Genesis 35, Jacob has multiple encounters with God through his life, but here's one of them. In Genesis 35 verse 3, Then come and let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God. So he's going up to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. We've got imagery of a house, of a structure. Not a tent this time. The house of God. He's on a mountain and he's building an altar. And God appears to him in verse 1 and in verse 9. We read about God appearing. And what God says to him in verse 11 is, Be fruitful and increase in number. 
We have a temple scene. We have imagery that we're familiar with from a temple and we have a command to multiply and increase. I want to make the point that a temple is not a building. A temple is a place where people encounter God. A temple is a place where people receive a commission or a promise from God, where people offer sacrifices to God. In a temple, you will find water and water imagery. In a temple, you'll find trees. In a temple, you will find priests and you will find altars where they are offering sacrifices. A temple is a place where heaven meets earth, where the sky is pulled open and God meets with man. And as the Old Testament goes on, when you get to Isaiah, I've got these verses on the screen. Isaiah hears God speaking about expansion again. God is into expansion. Never content with, with, with where we're at. He wants more. And in Isaiah 54, listen to the language and the context in which he speaks about expansion. He says, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your curtains wide. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. It's all the language of temple, and it's all the language of expansion. In Isaiah 64, look at the cry of Isaiah. Think about that veil in the temple. Think about that, that embroidered representation of the sky. And Isaiah says, oh, that you would tear it open and come down. That you would literally rip the sky apart and come down and be with your people. That's Isaiah's cry. And God says at the end of Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, where is the house you will build for me? In other words, men and women cannot build a house that can contain me. I will not be contained in a structure built by human beings. I cannot. There is none big enough. Keep those things in mind. We go to Jesus. Is there a tree anywhere in the story of Jesus? Is there water? Is there a hill? Is there an altar? Paul and Peter both refer to the cross as a tree. Jesus in John 7 cries at the Feast of Tabernacles that if anyone is thirsty, they should come to him and drink. And he offers living water over and over again, representing the Holy Spirit. Calvary, Golgotha, literally means the hill of the skull. And an altar is a place of sacrifice. And there's no need to explain that with Jesus. There's a lot of temple imagery going on here in the life of Jesus. Trees and rivers and hills, mountains, sacrifices, altars. Does God show up? Because that's what happens in temples. God appears. When you've got all these things going on in the background, God appears. A temple is a place where you meet God. It could be on a grassy hillside or it could be in a building. But a temple is a place where you meet God. Do we encounter God? Well, you'll hear it much over the next month. It's the first Sunday in Advent. And here we will hear John 1.1, the word was God. In him we have encountered God. Is there a tent? <clears throat> Literally John 1.14 says, the word became flesh 
and pitched his tent among us. Most Bibles will say made his dwelling or dwelt among us. In Greek, it says tabernacled among us. Have we got a tent image in Jesus? Yes, we do. Do you see all the imagery of temples and encounters with God all coming together? At his baptism, Isaiah's prayer was answered. Isaiah said, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens. And in Mark, in Mark's depiction of Jesus' baptism, it, we read that the heavens were torn open and the Holy Spirit descended. At his baptism, the heaven was torn open. At his death, the veil in the temple, which represented the sky, was torn open. The barrier destroyed. Heaven meets earth. He pitched his tent among us. He is wonderful and he is glorious. I love him. I get excited when I'm talking about him. I wonder how others sometimes don't get that excited when they're talking about him. As if they're just a little bit embarrassed, like he's their odd friend. No, your odd friend. Like, he's their odd friend. About half the church are now poking each other. Like, <laughs> I wonder why people don't get excited about him. He's incredible. 20 years ago today, I started following Jesus. There was a guy called Leslie Brush preaching from Matthew 25 at a wee mission in Loch Gaul. And the Holy Spirit came on me and convicted me that I had to get right with God. And I love him. I love him more than ever, more than yesterday. I love him. I'm so excited about who he is. I'm so excited about walking with him. Is there a commission at this temple scene? And what is the commission? Multiply. Expand. Go and make disciples of all nations. Folks, God has not changed. He's not started sketching something and crumpled it up and thrown it in the bin and started again and crumpled it up. It's always been the same. Always. I want a people for my name. I want a people among whom I can dwell. And the commission has never changed. And then you may ask, what has that got to do with Ephesians? Why did you take us all on that meandering journey over the Old Testament, into Advent, back out again into Ephesians? What are you trying to say? Paul says, there's still a temple. It's not on a hillside. It's not in a big tent. It's not a big glorious stone building. Jesus is physically absent from the earth. But there's still a temple. There's still a place where people meet God. And it is you. It is us. Corporately. There's a tree in this temple that we never forget we never take our eyes off it and we're going to be focusing on it. And I'm not pointing to that thing in the corner. <laughs> we never take our eyes off the tree at Calvary. Never. There's water in this temple. In Ephesians 4 or 2.22, we read about how God lives by his spirit. There's a river flowing 
a river of life through this temple? Is there a tent? Is there a structure? Well, Paul says, you're it. You're it. And Peter puts it even more plainly in 1 Peter. He says, you are living stones. There's a kid's movie, and I can't remember which one it is, of a notion that's frozen where these rocks roll around and talk to each other. Ah, there's the expert, the <laughs> D- Disney queen in the middle of the floor there. And I have this picture in my mind as, as we gather Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Friday night, Thursday morning, whenever, the stones roll in and get up on top of each other and build a temple. God comes. God comes. You are that temple. We are that temple. And no one will encounter God unless we live like it and act like it and prioritize being together. Look at the word, in him you too are being built together. Can't do it on your own. Can't do it on your own. You've got to be together. Are there precious materials in this temple? Oh, you better believe it. You are precious. You are precious. Gold and onyx has got nothing on you, folks. You are so precious in his sight. One of the things that, this might not be theologically correct to converse with the devil, but I learned it from Aaron. One of the things that I... (laughs) One of the things that I do sometimes when I feel the enemy discouraging me about this, when I feel I'm taking a shot, one of the things that I say is, you have underestimated how much I love these people. These are precious. When I say you're gold, I mean it. You're gold. This temple is built out of precious material. Is there an altar? When we bring a sacrifice of praise, we're at an altar. When we bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving, In prayer and in praise, we're at an altar. When we give a sacrifice of generosity, we're at an altar. There's an altar in this temple. There's an altar that we're called to climb up on and be on as living sacrifices. And is God here? (laughs) Well, I reckon so. I reckon so. And what's the commission? You are being built together. It's not finished. It's growing. Multiplication. Increase. I think I have a tiny little glimpse of what Jesus meant when he quoted in, uh, in John chapter 2 when he was in the temple. And he quoted from the Old Testament from the Psalms. And he said, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for the house of God will consume me. I love the church. I love the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and I want you to know that there is nothing better that you can do with your life than join him in building the church. And there's nothing worse you can do with your life than bring damage to the church. It is his bride and he's a big guy and he won't let you mar and offend his bride. Anything you do 
whether it's prayer, whether it's ministry, whether it's just loving people and opening your home to them, whatever it is, giving, just a whole myriad of ways that we can express ourselves, anything that results in the church being built, that's worth doing. That's worth doing. He will build his church, do nothing to harm it. Zeal for his church should be consuming us. Should be consuming us, a passion for the people of God. I said earlier, quoting from Isaiah, God cannot, he cannot dwell in a structure made by human beings. He will only dwell in a structure made from human beings. He will only dwell. He will, you build the biggest structure on earth. He won't dwell in it. But you put two people in a room. He says, I'm content to dwell there. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. A new temple. The refugee, the displaced person, the asylum seeker becomes part of a new humanity. And not only that, but part of a new temple where God dwells. How do you get through the veil? How do you get through the barrier? How do you get through the sky that seems to separate humanity from God? When you go back into the middle of the chapter, it's all Jesus and it's all the cross. In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Blood represents life. And when God looks at us and sees the blood, he sees life because death cannot enter his presence. He looks at us and he sees the sign of life in the blood of Jesus. Through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. It is because of the cross that we are part of this new humanity. And in just a moment or two, we're going to turn our eyes to it. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would go through the veil that was pictorial of the sky. He would go through the veil and he would bring in an offering on the Day of Atonement for, for sin. And I think I read somewhere that he has a rope tied around his ankle when he goes in there. Because if the offering's not accepted, he will die in the presence of God. And the only way to get him out is to pull the rope. <laughs> Don't know whether that's true or not, but I read it. But he would have gone in on that day. There's much about peace in, uh, in Ephesians 2, about Jesus being our peace and making peace and preaching peace. The priest would have gone in on that day, and some people speculate that there might have been up to a million people in Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. And this was the high point of it, the atoning sacrifice. And the priest was in there doing his thing, and the crowds would fall silent, wondering what's happening behind the veil. Will the sacrifice be accepted? And there was a hush and a tension and an expectation. And they would watch to see the curtain move. Is he going to come back out? Is the, is the end of the rope twitching? And then the veil would be pulled aside and he would step out. And he would say one word in Hebrew. Shalom. Peace. The sacrifice has been accepted. We have peace with God. And Jesus 
on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. This is resurrection day. Jesus came and stood among them. And your Bible might say, peace be with you or something like that. And you maybe read it and think he just walked in and said, you know, hello, what about you? He went in and he said one word. He said, peace. I have gone behind the veil and the offering has been accepted. And you can be redeemed. And you can be part of a people. And you can have citizenship. And you can be safe among the people of God. Sometimes people get hurt among the people of God. And it is the most despicable thing. Oh church, make this a safe place. The responsibility lies on every single one of us. Where the asylum seekers can come and knock on the door and say... I've heard that God's here. Can I be with you? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one song and break bread. Alan, I'd like you to just pray for the, for the emblems as we, as we do that. But if you guys want to come forward.